So we're in a little series called The 12 Steps for Everyone. We're doing this series maybe twice a month uh, between now and when Emily, our co-pastor, returns from her sabbatical. I think Emily's first preach is July 15th, so we can make it until then, I'm sure. So um, 12 Steps for Everyone. Uh, today we're looking at uh, steps four, five, and six. And so I wanted to give you the 12 steps so that you could see the steps four, five, and six in their context. And uh, thanks for taking a pen because we're going to use that as our, for our little exercise at the end. Raise your hand if you still need a pen. And uh, our crack team will get it to you over here. Teresa needs a pen. Um, oh, Teresa, here, I have a pen. Boom. Yes. Um, so today we're looking at steps four, five, and six. And you'll notice that the middle six steps of the 12 steps, steps four through nine, have to do with facing ourselves. Um, think of it as like ways that we might m make life miserable for ourselves and possibly those around us because of our character flaws. Um, now, the reason we're doing this series here is that Alcoholics Anonymous is really a spiritual path from, from beginning to end. And steps four, five, and six have a key word. Each step has a key word that describes an important spiritual element of the spiritual path that um, AA is a representative or example of. The three words are fearless, that's in step four, admitted, that's in step five, and ready in step six. So the spirit, the, the, the AA's language would be the higher power behind the 12 steps summons us to be fearless, to admit, to face reality as it is, and to get ready for something new. And these are important elements on, on a spiritual path to life. So a little bit of background here. Beginning with Abraham, in Abraham, the you know, uh, father of the Abrahamic faiths, um, roughly 1500 BC, beginning with Abraham, the Bible introduces a, like a completely for its time different vision um, than anyone had known before of deity. What is deity like and what does deity do? And this vision of God is a vision of a God who leads us into a better future. Now we, we may all take that for granted that that's like that's who God is. But this revelation that came through Abraham uh, came to a thought world that was dominated by the image of, of the recurring cycle. That everyone has a prescribed station in life, a prescribed role in life, and fate determines your station and your role. And there's no changing any of that. Everyone in that period lived in a thought world of unchanging givens. They were born into a static identity, static class, static social role. So if you think even further back from 1500 BC, from roughly 10,000 BC and the dawn of the agrarian society, um, the time between 10,000 BC and the time of Abraham and say 1500 BC, the pace of human change for human beings was almost imperceptible. That, that once humans had mastered fire and invented the wheel and starting farming, their basic lifestyle didn't change from that for thousands of years. 
compare that to our own experience of like rapid change based on the based on uh, technology and the increasing power of uh, information flow. So into this static thought world of the time of Abraham comes this completely new revelation of a different way of thinking about God. And the heart of this is really change is possible. Change can really happen. It begins with Abraham. He's living in Babylon. Yeah, he felt called to go to a place that he'd never even heard of, let alone knew how to get there. And the only way he could get there was by trusting this mysterious voice, this inner voice that was coming to him who was leading him to a different place. And he began, like for the first time, a journey of faith going from the familiar known experience of life that he had to an unknown experience of life by trusting in this higher power, to use the AA language. Um, he was influenced by the voice of this higher power um, and his offspring were influenced to like catch a whiff of a better land, like a better way of living. Uh, it was called a land of promise, which is a very future-oriented word. With this new vision of God, more people could begin, for the first time, to begin to imagine a different world and take steps to enter into that different world. So the book of Exodus, so the first book of the Bible is Genesis, that includes the story of Abraham. The next book is the book of Exodus, so named because it's the story of Moses leading an emancipation movement of the people of Israel who were in bondage in Egypt. And that story is so remarkable for its time because slavery was such a given in ancient societies. I mean, slaves didn't even think to imagine freedom. So once this story got out, the Exodus story, slaves all over, whoever heard this story, started looking for a chance to be free, that their station in life could change. So the Bible really is a, a, an ongoing expansion of this change is possible spirituality based on a God who wants to bring us into a better future. So he think this God is seeking something better for humanity. So the 12 steps is like a manifestation of this never been before spirituality. Um, if you think about addiction, the, the experience of addiction just mimics that old worldview of the recurring cycle that we're like we're life is like a merry-go-round from hell and there's ups and downs on the merry-go-round but it's essentially cyclical we can't even picture ourselves getting off of that merry-go-round it's a great picture of what addiction is like and the 12 steps comes along as a path for getting off that merry-go-round for reaching sobriety, for living a different way. And it must feel like very much like Abraham felt. It's like a faith journey from the familiar to what's completely unfamiliar and you can only get there by trusting in the voice or the urging or the, the care of a higher power. So step one, just to review as we get up to step four, this is all, I've just been giving you an introduction in case you wanted to know where we're at in the sermon. 
Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, made a decision to turn a will in our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, as we understood God. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. So, you know, why do people start going to a 12-step group or maybe uh, start, uh, you know, look for a therapist, look for a counselor. My job as a pastor, I'm talking with people all the time who are feeling stuck and looking for like resources to get unstuck and going to a 12-step group or going for therapy or counselor, or a spiritual director, whatever, is a step that people often take to do that. And what it takes to make that, that move is you have to start facing yourself. And you kind of realize, you know, I think there's some things that I'm doing that are just undermining my life. And I need to figure out what those things are so I can, so I can change. This, this move, it's, it's a very significant move. I, I feel like I have the honor of seeing people make this move um, just as part of my job. And, and I have a, a, a real appreciation for what it takes to make a move like that. It usually takes a combination of desperation you know, I've tried to fix it myself, but it's not working, along with a certain fearlessness. So it's a weird combination of like weakness, you know, <laughs> I, my own efforts aren't doing this, but at the same time, a kind of fearlessness. Like when people make that move, I'm always so proud of them. I'm like, wow, you go. That's impressive. You're, you're going to therapy, you're going to a 12, good for you. That's, that's, an, that's a fearless thing to do. And, and usually people do it with a kind of what the heck? I might as well. What do I have to lose? Mentality. So making an inventory here in step four, the language is pretty straightforward, right? I mean, making an inventory. Like if we had to inventory this space here, you know, what would we do? Well, we would like, you know, set the parameters of the space. Are we inventorying the stuff in this room, but not the storage area back there, and not the kitchen, and not out in the hallway? Okay, we're going to inventory this space. And what, what would we do? We'd, you know, get a clipboard and a, and a pencil, and we'd walk around, and we'd name the different things, and we'd write them down, and someone would count the chairs, and oh, there's a certain number of blue chairs, a certain number of red chairs, and yellow chairs. We'd designate it all. And, you know, we'd, we'd have an inventory after a half hour or so. Um, taking an inventory is not like rocket science. It was like the first science, actually, just naming things and cataloging things. But, and even taking a searching moral inventory is not at all difficult like in principle right I mean we make searching moral inventories all the time of other people <laughs> right like I mean I have done a searching moral inventory of our current president and I could just I mean I can just lay it out for you and I've uh, you know it's, wow, we, we do this all the time. We absolutely have the skills to make a searching moral inventory. So why is conducting, the thought of conducting a searching moral inventory, inventory of ourselves? Why does that just feel so like, oh, there are people who do this? Oh my gosh, you know. Who, who, would, who would do that? I mean, we think about it, it's, isn't it great to be around people who know their own faults? I mean, 
the, the fact is, you relax around people who know their own faults. It's a great, I, I, I think of Paul Sanda. I don't know what Paul's <laughs> faults are, but if you talk to Paul, he, he will, in, you know, if you have any conversation for any length of time, he's likely to mention one of his faults. And oh, I tend to do this or whatever. He, he calls it making friends with his shadow side. And that like you have to make friends with your shadow side. You have to be able to like accept the fact that, hey, I've got these faults. And you treat that, you treat those faults kind of like a crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. You know, he just shows up, he's beloved, but you know, well, that's the crazy uncle or whatever. It's just, we relax around people who know their faults. When we ourselves know our our faults and, and we're willing to put it into words, we actually relax ourselves quite a bit. It's like a relief to do this. So what is it that keeps us from doing this very simple thing that we have the skills to do? Well, it's fear. For, for all sorts of reasons, we're afraid to face ourselves in this way. So the key spirituality word or move of step four is fearless. Now, I think in practice, fearless means fear less rather than more if possible. <laughs> You've got to make this doable, you know? Um, like, or in practice, fearlessness is more like um, recognize your fear for what it is so it loses a little bit of its power over you. See, no fear has more power over us than an unrecognized one, right? Um, freedom from fear begins with the thought I wonder why I'm so afraid. Like um, a simple example, I, um, uh, Tim Kowaleski uh, works at a big company and he had a speaker come to the company who is the, the, the director of an of a LGBTQ um, organization in uh, one of the northern suburbs of Detroit. And he was telling me about this person and I thought, oh my gosh, she sounds amazing. We ought to have her come speak at Blue Ocean. She's a, she's a trans woman. And fine, I, I arranged to set up time for lunch. We're going, going out for lunch in a, in a week or two. I'm going to get to know her story and figure out a time she'd come and speak. And I was brushing my teeth in the bathroom. And the thought crossed my mind, oh, I'm going to go meet so-and-so. And I'm going to have her speak. And I was afraid. I was like, do I really want to do that? Like how, how will people rip? And I, I, I thought to myself, why am I, why do I have this crazy fear? I, I actually felt nudged by the spirit to contact this person. And then I realized, oh, this is just like a, this is just like a tape playing in my head. Like I used to be in a setting where it would be a big deal to do something like that. And I'd be putting a lot on a line and everyone would be nervous. And I was like, I had to remind myself, wait a minute, no, this will be great. This will be fine. I don't, I don't have to be afraid. It all began when I recognized I was afraid and, and saying, where is that fear coming from? So noticing our fears so that we can move into a practice like this, so important. And this, this is, I think, is where the one step at a time spirituality of the 12 steps comes in so handy. Step four is just an inventory. It's nothing else. It's just making an inventory, giving names to the objects in our room, so to speak, that are making our lives and possibly others around us miserable. Step five, 
admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. So in start, step four, we start with the simple inventory. We're taking stock about the things that seem connected to our misery. But it gets more real as we seek to admit to God, to ourselves, and especially important, to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. So here we're looking for accuracy. Um, the exact nature of our wrongs. You know, when, when we're at this part, we, we want to avoid euphemisms or like non-specific umbrella words that we're used to using all the time to describe things that are connected to our misery. So maybe instead of just saying, uh, I, I get stressed a lot. Well, what's the feeling of being stressed? What's going on when you're stressed? Well, actually, I get fearful and irritable a lot. Oh, okay. Well, that's, this is something we can work with. Instead of saying, well, I, I'm just, I'm sensitive. I'm very sensitive. We might say, well, actually, I get upset and I get angry real easily. <laughs> this, this is different than sensitive. It, it's more accurate. It's more, it's, if, if it is more accurate. Um, when I was uh, newly married, um, as a um, still practical teenager, um, my now late wife Nancy, she did not appreciate my sarcastic humor. And what I called funny, she experienced as mean. And, and I can remember for like, I don't know how long this took, but I was like, I would try to explain to her that well, my, my sarcasm was funny. And, and it was, certainly wasn't meant to harm or anything. It was just like this humor. Like Jesus was sarcastic at times. And, you know, all the great comics are sarcastic. And, you know, I'm just trying to, no, this is humor. This is, and, but she would, she just would, right? But it, I experience it as painful when you use that humor on me. And, and then I had to finally realize, well, if, it may be funny to me, but if it hurts her and I knew it and I still do it, then it is mean. And I had to give that word mean to my behavior. Uh, I didn't see myself as a mean person. I was a funny guy, you know. But uh, I was like, oh. So the, the more, this more accurate understanding of ourselves doesn't come by self-reflection alone, I don't think. I mean, for example, my understanding came out of, you know, interaction with Nancy. It, it comes through conversation. It comes through conversation with God, with another person that we trust, who can listen, who can ask us questions. Um, and often, I don't know if you've found this, that it's often in conversation with another person like that, um, especially if it's the right person, a non-judgmental person, who listens well and is willing to ask you non-judgmental questions and you interact about the thing you're grappling with. Have you noticed that if you've ever had a conversation like that with someone and you talk about something that you're dealing with in yourself that you don't really come to accept it in yourself or feel like you've even said it to God until you've said it to another person who like gets it and understands and hears what you have to say? 
It's just like there's this holy triad between the self and another person and God, and it's it's they're not separate things. They're, it's all part of a part of a spiritual movement that happens. Um, you know, I, I notice I've, I've been doing therapy lately this past year or so, um, weekly, and I notice in therapy when I say something to my therapist. Often it's stuff like I've known before in my head, but it's like when I say it out loud to the therapist, it's as if I'm saying it to God. And I'm also saying it to myself in like a much more significant way. So I really believe this. Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am among them. It's like there's something holy that happens in these kinds of interactions, if it's the right person you're talking to. Step six. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. So, I am a fan of the 12 steps. I, I admire the 12 steps. And I admire especially the, I think it's like genius, the 12 steps. How, how the 12 steps work, they're, they're so well adapted to our humanity. You know, like, this is not just like a linear thing, like, here's how to change, you know. It's like, it's indirect, and it's, it's how people actually work. Um, so first, you take the inventory. You're just naming the stuff. You're writing it down. And then you share that with another person, and the next step, someone you trust, who you feel comfortable with, and someone who won't judge you, maybe who has faced their own stuff and survived, and it's been helpful to them. And in that process, your stuff comes into clearer focus. Your, your accuracy improves. You're not being too hard on yourself and you're not letting yourself off the hook too easily. You're, you're finding some accuracy. And then you sit with it. This is our step six. You just sit with it for a while until you're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. There's some kind of spiritual movement happening in step six that we can't just nail down. It's, it's mysterious. You become ready. Um, like, it's time. The, the thing about being ready is you're not ready until you're ready. You know what I mean? You're not ready until you're ready. It's that you can't fake ready. Like, you're ready when you're ready. And it's a matter of time. And sometimes you can't rush ready. You know, you, you can nudge yourself to ready, but you, you can't rush ready. In fact, if you rush yourself to ready, you might like pull back and it's even harder. You just have to, you know, treat yourself like a, I don't know, a horse or a dog or, you know, something to kind of you nudge, nudge it along. Um, and you're ready for what in step six? You're ready to buckle down and improve, right? No. You're, you're ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And just, just consider the responsibility in this phrase. I became ready, entirely ready, to have God remove all these defects of character. If you focus on the defects of character, you're like, oh my Lord, how's that going to happen? There's just no way. And it's, a, it, it's like a crushing burden. I mean, I've been trying to stop this stuff all my life and I'm just going to, no, no, no. I was entirely ready to have God 
remove all these defects of character. All the responsibility, all the burden is on this higher power. This is why the higher power is named higher, not lower. Um, and the thing is, you know, maybe God won't start with the thing that bugs you on your list, you know. Like you really want to stop smoking or, you know, you, you want to do this or that or there's, there's one of these defects of character that you feel like extra ashamed about. And if it were known, you'd be like, oh, that would be so shameful. And like, you want, you want that to be taken care of. But this is like in the hands of God. And like God starts with where he wants to start. And, you know, I don't know, you, you know, I, I walk around with the, um, uh, the earbuds, you know, in my pocket in case I have a phone call and I'm on at the earbuds and blah, blah, blah. And I keep my... Can someone invent some earbuds that don't get all tangled up so easily? And then the phone rings and it's traffic, so you want the earbuds so you can actually hear what's going on. Just, just a minute, let me, I can't hear you. Let me get my earbuds out. And you pull it out and the earbuds, this is tangled spaghetti mess. And it's like, why did Steve Jobs die? Well, you know... He could have designed something that didn't... And then, you know, you have to just... You have to start somewhere. And you have to figure out... What, you start the wrong place and you make the knots worse. And, and you have to start somewhere. And God's kind of like that with us. He just starts somewhere to, like, start untying the tangled knot that is us. And so we're in his hands for this. Um, concluding remarks. I gave the introductory remarks... That was the main body, what I just finished. And these are concluding remarks, but they might last a little longer than you think. Uh, <laughs> have you noticed something about the 12 steps of AA? Run your list there, 12 steps. It's Alcoholics Anonymous. And there is no step that says, and then I decided to stop drinking. There is no stop drinking step in the 12 steps. That's the weirdest thing of all. And that's the reason someone joins AA, to stop drinking. But there's no step that says, and now you're ready to stop drinking. It's like you work this spiritual path and mysteriously you're enabled to stop drinking and it starts to happen. And for some people, it starts to happen in fits and starts. I think that's the common way. For some people, it's like, I just had my last drink and that's it. And now it's, we're celebrating year 37. You know, I've got my year 37 coin or, you know, whatever it is. But it's, it's different for everybody. But there's no step that says decided to stop drinking. Um, and yet, isn't that so adapted to our humanity like to how we actually work with these things. When alcohol or, or any um, behavior has you beat, it just has you beat. Um, if you could stop, if it's drinking, if it, you're, you're an alcoholic, you can't really control your drinking, you're not, it's not just problem drinking, you're, you're, you're addicted. If you could have just stopped drinking by deciding, I need to stop or reduce my drinking, you would have done so a long time ago and you wouldn't have needed AA, right? But there, we all know there are some things that get worse with the wrong kind of effort. Some things about us get worse with the wrong kind of effort. You know, in golf, it's well known that you don't walk up to the tee thinking, don't shank it into the woods on the right there. 
Whatever you do. And golfers know when, you know, like they, they, they say that, you know, watch out for the woods on the right. But you say it well before you're at the tee. They don't, if they say it, don't shank it to the right. They, you're, you're, you're trash talking the person at the tee. Because the brain is, the, the brain operates like with magic marker. Like we say to ourselves, don't shank it to the right. And what does the brain hear? Shank it to the right, shank it to the right, shank it to the right. So it's like the old canard, you know, um, you, you, can't, you know, everybody stop thinking of a pink elephant. You know, we naturally conjure pink elephant. Our brain doesn't hear or pay attention to the don't part. Some things get worse with the wrong kind of effort. And so a more indirect approach in those cases is needed. Um, I've been reading um, the Native American version of the 12 Steps. Um, it's called the Red Road to Wellbriety. This is fascinating. This is, this is you know, alcoholism is a big deal in the, in the Native American community introduced by the Europeans for oppressive purposes. And they didn't, their culture didn't have a chance to adjust to it. All just like came in a in a wave and, and, and um, there were um, native peoples who saw the 12 steps, um, you know, the, the regular, I guess you'd say, 12 steps is like just too white. Like didn't take into account like native culture. And so this is an adaptation of the 12 steps for native culture. It's quite brilliant if you're interested. Uh, you might want to read this. Um, but there's a thing in here and this comes out of native culture. It says, the cure for the sick tree is the forest. The cure for the sick tree is the forest. Or they say it another way, the cure is the culture. This is not like a typical European American way of thinking. It's a more native American way of thinking. The cure for the sick tree is the forest. I read a book called The Hidden Life of Trees, naturally. I read this after I read the book on dirt. And the, the hidden life of trees is, is just totally fascinating. Like a tree in your front yard, like on the boulevard there, and there's no other trees around it. We think, what a great place for the tree. It can thrive. It's not competing with other trees. Not so. It's extra vulnerable, a tree is, when it's out by itself like that. Because trees are designed to be supported in the context of a forest. So if you cut down a tree in the forest... The other trees sense that their, one of their brethren tree is in need and it will reach out its root system to keep the stump alive for a long period of time until it can send out a shoot. And as trees of their own species reach out preferentially to other trees of their species. But trees also reach out cross species. The different, an oak will reach out to a maple after it's taken care of the oaks, other oaks kind of thing. And so, like, if, if, a, if a tree in the forest um, gets attacked by an infestation of a, of a, I'm not a biologist, like an insect, you know, an invasive insect or something, it sends signals through its, its body to its root system. The other trees get the signal that someone is, you know, being attacked by this bug or whatever and they start generating the defenses in their trees and they spread the word slowly everything happens very slowly in forest talk and the forest generates defenses for itself against this assault 
So the cure for the sick tree is the forest. I mean, you think about all these steps. I mean, you've, you've got them and you're, you're looking at, you're reading them. All the steps begin with observing other people taking the steps. Like, learning it this way is not the way to learn it. You know? It all begins with observing first other people taking these steps at, at meetings. Um, and while we're observing other people take, taking the steps, think about it. You become more honest because you're watching other people struggling to be honest. Um, you're avoiding euphemisms and just naming it. You learn not to exaggerate your flaws because you see other people learning not to exaggerate their flaws. That doesn't help anybody. You, you, you watch as people don't minimize their flaws either and you get a feel for it. And as we see other people struggle for accuracy and facing their own stuff, it's like, oh, there's like a whole little um, culture of wisdom that develops around that, that you pick up just by immersion and observation. Um, for example, in order to do a good moral inventory, you actually have to be non-judgmental toward yourself. That's weird, right? It's a searching, fearless moral inventory. You'd think you'd have to be a real, like, hard on yourself to do that, but no. To do a good one, you have to actually practice self-kindness and you have to be non-judgmental toward yourself. If you do it with that blaming, condemning spirit, you'll tighten up and you'll just raise your hackles and your defenses. Um, you have to approach this in this forest mentality. It's like, hey, in this forest that I'm part of, we all have faults. I wonder what mine are. You know? It's a whole different thing, isn't it? If you feel like you're in a, in a forest of trees that each tree brings its own faults to the table and all you'd have to do is figure out, well, what are your, you know, what's your unique spin on the, on the fault list here? The culture of AA makes this possible because everyone has their own stuff to deal with, uh, which makes it easier for you to deal with yours. So it's like the opposite of Facebook. <laughs> Putting a good face forward, it's, it's, it's just a different culture. The culture of AA is one where nobody points out anyone else's flaws. Everyone is just encouraged to identify and work on their own flaws. And you don't give advice in an AA meeting, you just talk about how you handle your particular stuff and people learn. That's the kind of culture that helps us face the things about ourselves that contribute to our misery. Okay, time for reflection and that, that little piece of paper and you've got pens. Um, this is something we're gonna, it's a little more active this time than contemplative. But uh, churches um, try to do this ritually through what's called uh, the confession of sin. You know, like if you've been to like a reformed church, in every service there's a time when you recite a confession of sins together corporately. Um, and I don't know, there's something that's... I just... It doesn't work for me to do it that way. It's so generic. And so what I thought I'd do is I, I, I made a copy of the Book of Common Prayer. I think it's called the Litany of um, Penitence. And it's uh, designed for uh, saying aloud together. But I'm just going to have you look at that. And what I want to suggest is that you read through that and you just pick out one thing, maybe a phrase or a line, where you say, oh, I can own that one. You know, wouldn't it be fun to have a confession of sin like this where everyone just waited and when someone could actually own the first line would stand up and say it and then someone who could own the second line could 
stand up and say it and maybe give a like a practical example of that <laughs> wouldn't we all just feel incredibly intimidated and then incredibly relieved once it all happened so we're going to try a safer way of doing that and i just take a minute maybe i'll i'll read it out loud um no i won't i don't have a copy you can read you can read yourself i yeah every, i'll read it out loud what the heck thank you and as i do just identify something that your heart responds to and you think oh i could really own that one and then wonder oh what would be a good example of that now i want to i want to suggest as we do this that you not pick your worst sin and that especially you not pick the thing that you're ashamed of or you're like <gasps> you feel real nervous about this one but you pick something where it's just easy for you to a little bit dispassionately step back and say yep that's me I do that from time to time and here's an example like for me when I did it I came across um, uh, the line is toward the end about how how we uh, don't forgive others and I thought about I had this favorite uncle uncle Russ and he he my I was taking care of my mom when she was dying and he lived kind of nearby and he never came to visit and I was full of resentment about that because I was taking care of my mom and it was hard and all that and her brother is nearby and he'd never visited I called her called uncle Russ like just like a few days before she died I said uncle Russ you know Blanche is, is failing now's the time to come and visit and he didn't come and after that I was just pfft, nothing to do with Uncle Russ and I just regret that so much um, maybe 10 years went on he was my favorite uncle he was actually my only living uncle <laughs> and he was a great guy and when he died I was like that was the stupidest unforgiveness I've ever done that just hurt me it didn't hurt Uncle Russ that was so that was so unnecessary that suffering why did I do that you know so I have a great example right there. So you, but I don't, I don't mind saying that to you all. I'm not ashamed of it. It's just, it just is. So pick something like that. Okay, most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another and to the whole communion of saints in heaven and on earth that we have sinned by our own fault in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We've not forgiven others as we have been forgiven. We've been deaf to your call to serve as Christ served us. We've not been true to the mind of Christ. We've grieved your Holy Spirit. We confess to you, Lord, all our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience of our lives our self-indulgent appetites and ways, and our exploitation of other people, our anger at our own frustration and our envy of those more fortunate than ourselves, our intemperate love of worldly goods and comforts, and our dishonesty in daily life and work, our negligence in prayer and worship, and our failure to commend the faith that is in us, Accept our repentance, Lord, for the wrongs we have done, for our blindness to human need and suffering, and our indifference to injustice and cruelty, for all false judgments, for uncharitable thoughts toward our neighbors, and for our prejudice and contempt toward those who differ from us. 
for our waste and pollution of your creation and our lack of concern for those who come after us. So hopefully by now maybe one line or phrase has stood out. Maybe you're even thinking of a specific example. What I just invite you to do is circle that and initial it. <laughs> Don't write down the thing itself. This is like a more semi-public space. So just circle that thing that you can own and initial it. And if it's possible for you to have a, a specific example in, in mind, there's extra credit for that. We'll just take a 30 seconds or so for you to pick one of those out. This is totally voluntary. You know, it's fine to just doodle on there too. Um, circle the line or the phrase and initial it. Okay, since most of you are done, and now, as part of our little liturgy, uh, if you wouldn't mind um, folding that up, um, there's identifying information, cross it out. This is Sinners Anonymous group here. And uh, we'll ask, uh, maybe Alan Crow from uh, the Springfield Blue Ocean Church will uh, pass this around and put this in the brass plate and then we'll put it up on the communion table and this will be like our corporate confession in case you're wondering this is part of the ritual right here just let yourself think about wow everybody in the room has something to put on there and notice how you have a tendency to feel kind of compassionate toward people like you're not sitting there thinking oh my god what a bunch of sinners in here you kind of feel like, oh, yeah, we're all, we've all got something. It feels good to just acknowledge it together. You relax, and that's, that's what this is about. Man, you all are a bunch of sinners. That thing is filling up. I'm telling you. <laughs> Great, thanks, Alan. We'll put that right there. If uh, you can add any late-breaking ones to that as you come up for communion, if you like, and this is our this is our forest of of sins, us human beings together. Let's uh, sing together the doxology as we have our offering.